Okay, hear the word of God from Esther chapter 6 and 8. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. That night the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this, the king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. And now chapter 8. On that same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. The Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. Then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman, the Agagite, against the Jews. Again the king held out the gold scepter to Esther, so she rose and stood before him. Esther said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor with him, and if he thinks it right, and if I am pleasing to him, let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, who ordered that Jews throughout all the king's provinces should be destroyed. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Then, Xer- then Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name telling them whatever you want, and seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. So on June 25th, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated. It was sent to the Jews and to the highest officers, the governors and the nobles of all the 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. The decree was written in the scripts and languages of all the peoples of the empire, including that of the Jews. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Mordecai sent the dispassage by swift messengers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king's service. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives, and to take the property of their enemies. The day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th of the next year. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that the Jews would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on the appointed day. So urged on by the king's command, the messengers rode out swiftly on fast horses bred for the king's service. The same decree was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. The Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal robe of blue and white, the great crown of gold, and an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, 
the Jews rejoiced and had great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. So my name is Eric Weiner, and as you saw, I'm the youth pastor here at Waypoint Church, which means I'm used to people zoning out when I talk. It just kind of comes with the territory, right? Um, and, and I'm also getting used to complex conversations that juxtapose the morality of Thanos with other world leaders. And no, I don't have a YouTube channel. But I guess you'd have to be in, in youth group to get that one. So. Um, so, so the past few weeks, we have been studying the book of Esther and highlighting this theme. God is working behind the scenes. And I think many of us, for many of us, we have uncovered or been reminded over and over again of the many ways that God has been at work behind the scenes in our own lives. But we've also tried to tread lightly in this narrative because the book of Esther is situated in a pagan world seemingly detached from the God of Israel. And yet, in light of all of this, God is preserving this story. But why is this mess of a world, ruled by this mess of a king, who, with, with this heroine who has this messy backstory, so worth preserving? I mean, what, what do we gain from this story? What truth do we uphold by looking to the book of Esther? And the answer, I believe, is resoundingly, even when circumstances are bleak, even when world leaders are corrupt, even when God himself seems absent. Esther paints a theological picture that vividly displays the God who saves his people. God saves his people. So this morning, as we continue in our series on Esther, I want to draw our attention to the theme of God's protection and rescue. The book of Esther rightly displays God's commitment to his promises and the certainty of his salvation and deliverance. And so I want us to consider two points. First, God's sure salvation is made known in the details. God's sure salvation is made known in the details. And second, God's sure salvation produces great reversals. But first, what is at stake in the book of Esther? What's the main problem? What's happening here? To put it simply, God's very promise that he made to Abraham and David is at stake. God has made it clear that he would provide a savior to deliver the ultimate rescue of his people. We're talking about Jesus, okay? If you're ever in some school, the answer is Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. 
the permanent decree to wipe out the people of Israel while they remain under the foreign rule and subject to human wickedness is clearly in view. But we must recognize, even in these circumstances, that God is all-powerfully present even when he seems most conspicuously absent. Which brings us to our first point. God's sure salvation is made known in the details. And believe me, he leaves none of his good plans to chance. Now, what do I mean by that? The deeper you go in studying the book of Esther and its place in the biblical storyline, the more questions you will have and the more you will see God's mighty hand of salvation at work. For example, Esther takes place during a time when the Jewish people are returning from exile to Jerusalem. If you read Ezra, if you ever by chance read the book of Ezra, uh, King Cyrus, the Persian king, has already given the decree for the Jewish people to begin returning and rebuilding their great city that was destroyed as they were cast into exile. That alone, I mean, you have this, this great foreign king who's giving permission for this, this group under his rule to, to go back and, and, and start to rebuild. That alone sounds pretty providential, right? Esther coincides with Zerubbabel, who is returning to rebuild the temple. So you have these three guys. So you have Zerubbabel, you have Nehemiah, you have Ezra. These, all these guys are returning to, and leading a remnant of Jewish people to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their, their city. So, so Esther is taking place at the same time Zerubbabel and another, a, a group of people are going and they're rebuilding this temple that has been just destroyed, just demolished. Which raises the question, why are Esther and Mordecai and a remnant of, of other Jews still hanging out in the Persian capital. Why didn't they go back too? And, and why does Mordecai instruct Esther to hide her Jewish identity? I mean, she, she won't be practicing her faith in the royal palace. It's not going to happen. I mean, wh why is there no God-honoring defiance against human powers like Daniel? Or, or like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And as we go further still, why the seemingly random and oddly specific details about Mordecai and Haman? Did you guys notice this? If you read through Esther in its entirety, Mordecai and Haman are the only two people that the author ties specific family lineage to. If you look at Esther 2.5, it says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. Then, in Esther 3.1, it says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. No other person in the entire book is referred to with such specific family details. So what's up with that? What's going on here? What's that about? That seems strange. Well, here's what I know of God. He does not waste words. And the intentional details are never trivial. When you approach God's word with this understanding, it, it can only expand the depths of his beauty and majesty. I mean, the Holy Spirit is pleased to use such curiosity to reveal and teach you more deeply the fullness of God's word. And what this also should say to us is that God cares about the details of your life. 
To assume otherwise is to view the circumstances of your life different from God. What you see as trivial may actually be the very hand of God working behind the scenes of your life to reveal an even greater mercy. Or perhaps a step in the journey to an immeasurably beautiful gift of God's grace. Longtime pastor John Piper says that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. In other words, the God of the universe is not the God of your imagination because your finite mind can never even begin to grasp the full measure of God's glory. If God fits neatly into all of your little categories, then your God is too small. If God fits into all of your little categories, your God is too small. But if you have room for mystery and wonder and awe, if you have the capacity to say, God is able to do things I do not understand, that is the very God who is working behind the scenes to work out the salvation of his people in Esther. And it's the same God working behind the scenes in your own life to grow you in your love for him. And he can use even the worst of human wickedness for sure and steadfast plans. And we actually see that happening in Esther. Proverbs 21.1 says, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. I mean, is that not what God is doing when Esther puts her life on the line by appearing before the king's outer courtyard unannounced? She's risking her life. She says, if I perish, I perish. This is what happens next. And then in Esther 5.2, it says, when he, King Xerxes, saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. He was pleased with her. Powerful kings over mighty nations are incredibly small to the mighty hand of God who can humble nations and uphold his people. Now, as modern readers of Esther, we we joke about names like Jair and, and Agag, and we try to pass over them as quickly and as painlessly as possible. I mean, we, in our Bible studies, we, even, we may even be, we, we may even call them J and A, right? Because, because names are hard to get right anyway. And unfamiliar names are, are nearly impossible. And, and if you hear me saying these names correctly, you think, wow, how, how do you know? It's like seminary degree. No, I, I made a note in my, in, in my notes of how to say them correctly because I didn't want to mess it up. Names are hard, but, but names are important because they mean something. Growing up, my, my dad liked to tell people that my middle name was Mischief because I was always getting into who knows what. You probably have kids like that, you know kids like that. Ironically, my middle name is actually Eric, which means eternal ruler, so got that going for me. Um, but, but, but back to the point. To the Jewish people, an Agagite, Haman was an Agagite. An Agagite would have raised some eyebrows because it carries a lot of meaning. So when you hear Agagite, I want you to think, perennial enemy of God aiming to wreak havoc and so jeopardize the promises of God. Did you catch that? Yeah, I'll say that again. Perennial enemy of God aiming to wreak havoc and so jeopardize the promises of God. That 
wasn't, that's, that's an Agagite. So let's go back and, and trace this story arc through God's redemptive history. We're about to span about a thousand years of biblical history just like that, just really quickly. So the Amalekites, we all know the Amalekites. The Amalekites are mentioned about 24 times in the Old Testament. That's, kind of, that's a lot, I think. Uh, the, the Amalekites derive from Amalek, who's the grandson of Esau. So brother of Jacob, Jacob and Esau, sons of Isaac, sons of Abraham, okay? So, so the, Am- the Amalekites were the first people group to attack the Israelites after God's rescue from the Egyptians in the Exodus account. Their actions here display the kind of character of this greedy people. I mean, so the Israelites, they're, they're camping out, they're trying to catch their breath after this, this physical and emotional event that just happened in their life. I mean, they, they, they literally saw this, uh, this sea open up and they walked through it. They thought they were going to die. They're saying, we would have been, we, we been better off in Egypt. And they make it through it. God provides for them. And then, boom, here comes the Amalekites. They come into attack and, and, and they try to take advantage of the Israelites while they're weak and defenseless. I mean, this is the most advantageous time for them to swoop in. You guys, you, you actually, many of you probably know this story. So, so Moses goes up on the mountain. So, so the Israelites are finding the Amalekites. Moses goes up on the mountain and he's holding up his arms. And her and, and Aaron go up with him. And as he lowers his arms, the Amalekites are winning. As he keeps his arms up, so they hold his arms up and the Israelites win. You've heard this story. You know this. You just know it was the, the Amalekites. So after Moses and Joshua lead Israel to victory over the Amalekites, God makes this decree. He says, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And when God tells you to write something down, that means it's important, okay? So, so and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation, Exodus 17. Now, fast forward in Israel's historical arc about 40 years, and Moses is preparing the Israelites to enter the promised land and teaching them how they are to live in the land according to God. Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy 25 that the Amalekites are the poster child for opposition to God through greed and covetousness. He says in in Deuteronomy 25, he says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So the Amalekites represent the kind of wicked and cruel human power that desires to destroy and tear down the people of God. They don't fear God. They oppose him at every turn. Now, what do the Amalekites have to do with the Agagites? This is a riveting question, right? I mean, this, this is what most of you woke up at church to find out this morning. Some of you, some of you providentially awoke last night burdened by the answer to this question, and you called out to someone in your household to read through the Torah, but you still couldn't place it. God gave you some providential insomnia, and you're just like, I, I just, I, I got to come to church and find this out. So here we go. So fast forward to the time of Israel's first king, Saul. During the reign of King Saul, the Lord instructs him to lead the people of Israel by finally putting an end to these pesky Amalekites. And in Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, the Lord instructs Saul to take down the Amalekites, not even sparing their cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul calls together soldiers to go attack the Amalekites. 
And in 1 Samuel 15, 9, it says, But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Now these moments in the Bible should be called face palms, right? Because when you read it, your initial reaction is, I did not realize it was possible to be this dumbfounded by another person's actions. I mean, hold on though, it gets worse. So the Lord is displeased with Saul because he clearly disobeyed his instruction, right? And he sends Samuel to confront Saul and ultimately reject him as Israel's king. And when Samuel appears to Saul, Saul greets him by saying, Samuel, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel replies, Oh yeah? Huh. Well, Saul, what's that? What's that bleeding of sheep that I hear? And, and is that, Saul, is that, is that cattle too? The last time I talked, you didn't have any of that. Where'd you get them? Saul, sensing the disapproval here, he responds with saying, oh, oh, well, you see, my soldiers, those guys, okay, so here's what happened. They, they spared the best sheep and cattle, but don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. We're going to use them to make sacrifices to the Lord. And then Samuel delivers the ultimate reproof. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 22, he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? In other words, the heart of the prideful and greedy don't long for God's wisdom. The cry of God's people will one day be, Lord, your ways are always right and just. But it's the wicked and foolish who say, I don't need God. And that's exactly what Saul is leading his people in. It may seem small, but it is not. Because as the king goes, so goes the nation. And what we all need is a king who always follows the Lord. You see, the Lord doesn't desire your religious activity. He desires a contentent heart that longs for his instruction and direction. By the way, is that how you see yourself before God? Needy, but with every need graciously met with patience and forbearance? That's God's extension of protection and salvation to those who will receive it and believe. And what about the implications of Saul's actions on the rest of the nation? Is it inconsequential? Does it not matter? Is it no big deal? No. King David and King Hezekiah will have to deal with devious encounters and attacks by the Amalekites during their, their reign. So what do we make of human responsibility and its seeming disruption of God's wise plans. Well, I'm going to leave that there for Pastor Lawrence to deal with next week. But Pastor Ray Ortland says this. He says, I am helped by remembering that I am always, moment by moment, creating conditions I'll have to live with five minutes from now. And, to some extent, the conditions you'll have to live with. My space touches your space. So I owe you the best I can come up with. I think he's right. But is that our perspective about the way that we live? 
From Saul's perspective, he won't know the half of it. And we won't either until we fast forward again about 500 years later. And at the time of Esther, Haman, the Agagite, a descendant of King Agag, who wants to destroy Mordecai, the Benjaminite, a descendant from the same tribe as who? Saul. Coincidence? Not a chance. And Haman has set a decree in motion under the authority of King Xerxes, the most powerful ruler of their day, to blot out God's people and seemingly jeopardize the promise of a Savior that God has made to those whom he loves. Now maybe you're thinking, well, there's a remnant of Jews who left for Jerusalem. I mean, you you said that earlier, right? So worst case scenario, God, God will preserve them, right? Except Jerusalem is still under Persian rule, and the decree made by the king is to be carried out over all his controlled provinces. Now, as an aside, none of you asked for this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. This is what amazes me about Marvel Comics Universe. Okay? So, so Marvel has produced 21 movies over the span of 11 years with different main characters, storylines, and directors that all tell one story. Now, I don't know this from experience. Am I, am I getting this right? Is this? 22 movies. Okay. 22. So, correction. 22 movies. Um, all telling one story. And they're all interconnected. I mean, you can probably watch Endgame, the last movie of the series, and, and get the, the general action, the, the main plot, and all, all those ideas, right? But you miss the depth and the complexity and the interconnectedness of the, of the entire series. And I say that as one who's on the outside. Like, I don't even know the half of it, but I hear about it all the time. Similarly, we just spanned about a thousand years of biblical history in a matter of minutes to trace one specific storyline that highlights God's ongoing protection and salvation. And specifically in Esther, at the very pivot point of the entire narrative during the same night that the perennial enemy of the Jews is plotting Mordecai's demise, God is working behind the scenes to direct the king's heart to bring Mordecai honor. In Esther 6.3, King Xerxes asks, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for rescuing the king? Nothing has been done for him, which is odd because typical Persian practice, according to the writings of the Greek historian Herodotus, would be for the king to provide immediate honor and reward to those who have come to his aid. Mordecai saved the king's life, yet Mordecai's actions have gone uncelebrated for five years. The timing of this is undeniably an act of God's protection. And this isn't some isolated occasion in which we see God's providence. This is how God has always operated. Is that obvious to you yet? Are you getting this? Second, God's sure salvation produces great reversals. Now, that, that any reversal in this book is possible at all is surprising simply due to the permanence of Persian royal edicts. Ironically, the Persian constitution would not allow for any such reversal of its decrees. A law set in in motion by the king was final and binding. Which is why what unfolds in chapter 8 of Esther should be a sure sign to us that God is at work to bring about a great reversal that some commentators agree would be impossible in Persian law, but is being made possible by God. 
what we essentially see happening here between King Xerxes and, Esther's, and, and Esther is Xerxes is, is agreeing to look the other way so long as Esther and Mordecai not damage his reputation, which they would do if they revoked Haman's decree. So they have to find a way to work around it. So Esther and Mordecai write up a new decree that is littered with reversals that favor the Jewish people. In chapter 8, Esther and Mordecai are given the same use of the king's signet ring, secretaries, and couriers to swiftly write and put this new law into action. On the day Haman's decree was approved and sent out, Mordecai tore his clothes as he wept and mourned. But on the day Esther and Mordecai's decree is approved, Mordecai is clothed in royal garb as he is given the highest honor. Even the city of Susa, whose response to Haman's decree was one of confusion, is now said to be in joyous celebration. Once again, the mighty saving hand of God is undeniably at work. What we are really witnessing here is the God whose sure foundations never falter and whose sure promises never waver. As we find ourselves in the midst of our own great reversals, we must ask God to open up our capacities to believe in the seemingly impossible. Because that's exactly what God is in the midst of doing among us now. To some of us, this, this is still very new. But to others, you would think we'd be getting to, used to the unthinkable, right? God may always feel new. When I was in college, I spent six weeks in East, East Asia on a mission trip. And early on in our trip, my friend Mark and I befriended this guy named A. And A was a, was a first-year law student that we played basketball with a lot. And we also shared the gospel with him, and we talked about the Bible a lot. Conversations with A were some of the most challenging conversations I had on the entire trip because of his skepticism and his reasoning. I mean, it literally felt like he was drilling us with Chinese proverbs that I didn't have the cultural intelligence to even begin to answer. Hey, what do you think about this thing, this thing, this thing? I have no idea what you're talking about. How does that relate to what we're talking about? Well, one day, toward the end of our trip, we were at this big park near the university we were studying at. And Mark and I knew this would probably be our, our last chance to connect with A about Jesus. And honestly, we, we, we both thought it was perilous. I mean, Mark and I literally had conversations together where we would jokingly wager what crazy thing we would do if A ever came to faith in Jesus. And then that day at the park, A told us he believed everything we had been telling him about Jesus. And Mark and I were shocked. I mean, we, we were shocked. We both thought that there is no way. And if it were up to us, that, that would be true. But God continues to work behind the scenes. And we must remember again and again how impossible salvation seems, but how incredibly possible it is with our God. So what now? We said that God's sure salvation is made known in the details. So search them faithfully. By that I mean do not count the details of God's word as insignificant, no matter how small and trivial it may seem to you. God has written a book revealing himself to us and his ongoing work of salvation. The very fact that it is God's word makes it significant. God has woven together 66 books with 40 different authors over 2,000 years to weave together one unified story. And it is not about you. It is about our great God 
And he invites you into his story through the salvation he offers. So humbly approach God's word with genuine curiosity. Take note of repeated words and phrases. Ask questions about the details. Use the cross-references to other passages and dig deeper for context. Read in community. Allow the Holy Spirit to be your guide in revealing truth to you as he continues the ongoing work of making you new in Christ Jesus. Second, we said God's sure salvation produces great reversals. So rejoice in them often. Rejoice in them often. What is it that keeps you from rejoicing over and over again in the goodness of our God? To what do you look at in your life today and say, we have no hope unless God gets involved? Let me tell you, friends, God is involved. He is not absent. He, is ne- he wasn't absent then. He is not absent now. And his mighty hand of salvation is sure and steady. I mean, he doesn't get worried or caught off guard. He doesn't share the same anxieties that you have, though he patiently offers to bear them for you and to give you a new song to sing. Now, if you're lacking that song to sing, if that's you this morning, here's a challenge for you, and we'll end with this. Go home and look up this song. Write this down. It's called Christ is Mine Forevermore. It's by this group called City Alight. One word, City Alight, one word. Here's our song. Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, his love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am his forevermore. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Though the valley I must travel, where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we we praise you, God, for for the salvation that you have, have brought to all of us. God, if there's anyone in this room who has not received your salvation, God, I pray that you would be at work in their hearts. You, you can do the impossible. You have done the impossible in our lives, God. We believe that you will continue to do the impossible in our city. You will continue to draw people to yourself, God. You, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. God, would you continue to work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.